So take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. We're uh, continuing in our series, and by all accounts, it's, it's been a good one so far, and a number of you have responded to me with emails and things like that. So let's pray this morning, and then we'll get started. Father, as we come, uh, it's been a good two services, and uh, we're in the midst of uh, some pretty dumping rain and some winds that are supposed to come. And uh, we just sang that song, Through the Storm. Through the storm, the wind and waves still know your name. We're going to be looking at this concept of you are the solid rock of the universe. Nothing can move you. And uh, it's, it's something we know, but it's sometimes something we also get away from. And we think the circumstances and the storms of life are bigger than you. So this morning, again, it is an open invitation to you to be among us, open invitation for you to have conversations with us, um, if you take a point and want to go somewhere with somebody on it, then please do so. We seek you for that. And um, may you have your way this morning. And we pray this in, with great hope and we ask this in your name. Amen. Somebody asked me, said, hey, lately you've uh, been ending your prayers with this statement. Uh, we pray that with great hope. And the reason I've been doing that is because a lot of us have little hope. We, right? We're kind of flagging in that. And so I just want to keep hope in front of us that Jesus is our hope and Somebody says, well, how long are you going to pray? And I said, well, when we're full of hope, then I'll quit praying it. So we'll, we'll keep going. All right, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. We're in the series called Fortitude, uh, Courage and Strength for the Road Ahead. And uh, way, where that? I'm way ahead here. I blew my punchline there. All right. Verses 4 and 5, they read like this. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, Many of your translations, it would say the living stone. It's talking about the Lord Jesus there. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is using an analogy that would have been uh, an incredible or enormous word picture for Jewish Christians, right? Because they have the whole tapestry and history and backdrop of the Old Testament. And in that, there's a lot of this kind of analogy uh, that's used in terms of uh, fortress and rocks and um, stones and that, that sort of thing. And so he takes that concept and flips it and says, you are living stones. And we'll talk about that a little bit, what that means. But um, before, we, before we do that, what I, we're going to do is go back to the Old Testament and connect with the illustrations that are there. Now, for some of us, this might not initially connect, um, this idea that God is a rock, God is a fortress, but uh, we use this language even in our culture, right? So now I jump to my punchline. Uh, if you remember this uh, commercial series, remember this back in the 90s? Chevy truck, right? Bob Seger. Talking about how strong you see the truck splashing through mud and hauling stuff and horses and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. And the idea behind that was our trucks are dependable, our trucks are solid. Our trucks don't break down and, you know, like a rock, right? And all the Ford people are going, okay, not interested in selling Chevys. Just want to get the idea across that we understand this concept of a rock um, in our culture as well. I'm keep clicking here. Um, some other things are like that. Um, we save of, uh, of an athlete, right, that he's built like a rock. And we're talking about he's really ripped. And, you know, he's got tremendous muscle and we 
He looks like a rock, and so we use that. Matter of fact, uh, one actor, Dwayne Johnson, actually has the moniker, the rock, right? So we use that present day. But we don't use it near like Israel used it. There was some special connotations, some deeper connotations that they used it for uh, when they were talking about it. And uh, I want to be able to uh, take Peter's analogy here and take a look at where did this all come from and where did they get these pictures from? So if you you go, I'm going to take a look up here at Deuteronomy. You can turn along with me uh, if you like. I'm going backwards. What is going on here? There we go. Go to Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, Moses uh, uses... Remember, in Deuteronomy, they had come through the wilderness wanderings. So Moses is now pulling these illustrations from those experiences, and he says this in Deuteronomy 32.4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Scripture affirms the goodness of God, that God is without iniquity. Uh, We, on the other hand, are full of iniquity, uh, Isaiah says that our iniquities have separated us from us. But God is does not. In other words, he's solid like a rock in his heart in terms of his steadfastness or fortitude. And so Moses calls him the rock whose work is perfect. If you look at 32.15, Jeshurun, it's talking about Israel there, grew fat and kicked. It grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Israel got to the place where they had a lot of good stuff. They said, look what we've done. Aren't we awesome? right? And they saw themselves as the rock, not God as the rock. And it says they scoffed at him and then forsook him. Right? So there's this idea of moving away from this rock, this, this fortress that protects us. There's a tendency in human nature to move away from that. And Moses captures this here in Deuteronomy. Now, if you go back to the wilderness wanderings, you say, well, where did he get that from? Right? Moses and Israel... Um, I'd spent 40 years in the wilderness together. And so a, a couple real clear pictures. Number one, remember when Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he was there getting the Ten Commandments and then uh, he wanted to see the glory of God? And so God said, you won't be able to see me because if you do, you'll die. But I'll tell you what, when I come by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, right? And then you'll be able to see the passing after I go by. And so there's always been... This idea of he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock, right? The idea of the rock being God who protects us. And then, of course, Moses, while he's on Mount Sinai, got the uh, laws of God, what we know as the Ten Commandments, and they were written on tablets of stone, right, that were taken out of a rock. So the, the word of God originally came on tablets of stone. And then when they were in the wilderness, uh, they were marching through, and it says they had been without water for three days. Uh, and we tamed that down quite a bit because we think, well, come on, that can't be that bad. Think about 95 to 130 degree heat somewhere in there without water for three days. You get a little different picture. And they get mad. Where's the water for our, our wives and our children and our cattle? You brought us out here to kill us. And God says, must I bring water out of this flinty rock? And so you know the story. Moses goes up and he strikes the rock, and water gushes out, enough water to for three and a half million people and their animals to drink. Think about that. Jesus actually uses this analogy when he's uh, in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. He says, you see that well lined with rock? He said, everybody drinks of that well is going to 
thirst again. But if you drink of this rock, rivers of living water will spring up in them. In other words, Jesus is the rock from which living water comes. And so all of these illustrations were ones that they didn't just know about. It was ones they had lived through. It was ones they had experienced. So they were very familiar with the idea of God being called their rock. Uh, King David, if you remember his story, if we move on into Israel's history, and um, they come into where the kings come into play and it becomes an established kingdom. And David in the early years, though, uh, is in trouble because King Saul has become jealous. Uh, King Saul knows that God's going to rip the kingdom from him and give it to David. King Saul wants the kingdom for his son Jonathan, so he tries to peg David to the wall with a spear a couple times. David takes off and flees for his life. And it says that he flees to the Judean wilderness. And he flees to the rocks and the fortresses that are found out there. And you read about the rock of Ramon and the rock at Horeb and the fortress at Gedi and these different places. I just came through Second Samuel. If you're wondering how I know this. Right? And talking about these different places and rocks and fortresses where uh, he's hiding out at. And David captures um, this theme as well. Look at 1 Samuel up here, chapter 2. It says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Think of the picture as he's sitting in these rock fortresses and hiding places, talking about these aren't really my protection. It's God who is the rock who is my protection. In 2 Samuel 22, it says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence, was what David said. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And David's using all the things in their culture that are strong things that talk about God's protection of them. Uh, God is his fortress. He is his rock. He's his deliverer. He said he's a shield. He's the horn of my salvation. Uh, that one doesn't make any sense to us because we're city kids. But if you grew up on the farm and you had bulls around, you get that picture really quick because uh, in Israel they had oxen, and oxen have real thick necks, and oxen have real thick shoulders, and oxen have real thick heads, right? And out of those heads come really strong horns. And if you read in Leviticus, there's all kinds of stuff about goring and what happens if an ox gores because it was a common occurrence. And they knew, uh, have you ever watched the... Run with the bulls, right? Those people are nuts. And I've done a lot of stupid things in my life. I would never do that because I grew up on a farm with bulls. And I'm like, uh-uh, right? Because you watch those and Some of those guys get flung 15 feet in there and you're like, are you crazy? And the horns on those animals are perfect pitchforks, right? Just flick, right? And they can punch a hole and rip and, and disembowel a guy in seconds. And David's saying God is like that strong horn, nothing can break it, nothing can snap it off. And he's saying these illustrations where he's trying, but the one that he uses is God is my rock. God is my protection. Matter of fact, the whole chapter of Second uh, Samuel 22 is about this. And if you want to go back and look at it and, and take a peek at it, you can. It's, it's got more, but um, he goes on to say, um, who is... God, this is in verse 32 and 33, who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? In other words, who's steadfast? Who's got fortitude? Who's immovable? Who is bigger and more solid than anything that comes my way? It is the Lord who is my rock. That's what he's saying. 
This, this God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. Second Samuel verses 47 and 48 in chapter 22. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me. Now as I'm reading those verses, you're, not all of us are, are Old Testament hounds, right? So, but some of you are going, that, you know that, those, that rings, that sounds familiar. Why do those verses, why do I know them? I, I have never read Second Samuel. Why does that sound uh, familiar to me? Well, one of the reasons it does is because David went on to write another book, and it's called the Psalms. And this whole theme of God as rock is deep, deepened and salted even more in the, in, in the Psalms. And you pick up this imagery everywhere you go in the book of Psalms. Uh, let me just give you a couple uh, examples here. In Psalm 18, 1 and 2, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my rock, my God, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Does that sound familiar? David was pulling off of what he originally wrote in 2 Samuel and expanding it in the Psalms. Psalm 61, Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. He's talking about somebody who's at the end of themselves and doesn't know what to do. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me. It's one of the most famous statements in Scripture. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. And David is talking about how God has protected him in spite of all the enemies and all the troubles he's run into. God has preserved his life and God has been his rock. And you find this all through the Psalms. Um, There's a lot more in the Old Testament. We, We don't have time to go in depth this morning. But uh, I was reading in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, and they were um, quoting a guy named Norman Hillier, who's a theologian, whose uh, thesis was on the rockstone imagery found in uh, the Old Testament. And you'll recognize these. So he went through what are the pictures of that. And if you see these, you recognize Psalm 118, rejected but vindicated building stone. The whole New Testament is loaded with that image of Jesus being the cornerstone, right? That was rejected, and we're going to look more at that next week. Uh, Isaiah 8.14, the stumbling stone, that also comes up next week in depth. Isaiah 26.16, he's the foundation stone. Isaiah 51.1 and following that chapter is the the parental rock. In other words, remember the stone that you were cut out of, i.e., remember your heritage, remember where you came from. Remember who found you. Remember who saved you. Is, is God saying to Israel, it's good words for us as well. But that's uh, Isaiah 51. Daniel, we talked about last week, was the supernatural stone that was cut out without hands from the mountain. In other words, a rock. And then thrown against the kingdoms of the world, the kingdom of gold, the kingdom of silver, the kingdom of bronze, the kingdom of iron and clay. And it all crushed and then blew away like chaff. And then that stone grew and filled the whole earth. That was Daniel. And then Zechariah talks about the burdensome some stone. Uh, many of us don't spend time in Zechariah, but uh, you would recognize much of Zechariah because many of the quotes in the New Testament come out of the book of Zechariah. Very trippy prophetic book. You should spend some time in there. It, it's, it's a great read. But he talks about this um, burdensome stone, this stone that gets in the way, this stone that's thumping people on their shins because every time they try to lift, lift it up and move it, it boomerangs on them and it kind of falls on them and crushes them. That's in Zechariah. Well, that's 
language that Peter's going to use in the verses that we're going to look at uh, coming next week. And so this burdensome stone, that Israel is a burdensome issue in our world today. It's been a thorn in the world's side for a long time. And God says it's like a burdensome stone, and it's not going to move. He is going to defend that nation. He's going to defend that stone. And so Zechariah is talking about that. So there's another theme now. Lock that, and then let's go in one more direction. There's another theme that develops with the ark and the temple. Remember that the ark was made to very specific instructions. God said, make sure you follow the exact pattern. And the idea there was that the pattern of the ark on earth was a copy or shadows of what actually exists in heaven. And so they built the ark, and then they went through the wilderness wanderings. And then when David and Solomon became king, that got instituted into this building we call the temple. right? And the temple was the great central defining peace and building not only in the nation, but in the hearts of the people and in their history. It was the defining image. So, for example, if you come to Seattle, right, you got the Space Needle. You got Pike's Place Market. You got the ferry, right? That's our defining. You go to Jerusalem, you have the temple. And everybody went to Jerusalem for the temple. It was the big draw. Uh, Solomon's temple that he built uh, was uh, incredible in terms of it was covered and layered with gold, so you can imagine when the eastern sun came up and hit that, it just went electric. Right? Uh, Herod, when he rebuilt the temple in Jesus' time, said it took 46 years to build that temple. So you can imagine uh, the work that went into it and the masonry and stonework that went into a building like that. Hebrews gives us a clue on this. Uh, if you look at Hebrews... In Hebrews chapter 9, he's talking about the reality versus copies. And he says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, i.e., that's the ark and the temple, they were copies of the heavenly things, to be purified with these rites, the, the priesthood. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands. In other words, it's not a man-made structure Jesus entered into, which are copies of the true things, But Jesus has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so a new way has been opened up. And Peter is using that illustration of the new way, and he's talking about living stones. Uh, If you talk about the tabernacle uh, and this cornerstone idea that Jesus is the cornerstone, again, uh, Hillier is talking. He says, One stone that was cut for the temple measured 69 feet by 12 feet by 13 feet. So 60, that's, it's 80 feet from wall to wall. So figure, right, five feet on each end, you got 69 feet, that's about how long it was. And it's 12 feet high, so, right, a little, somewhere halfway through. And it was 13 feet back, so about the width of that. Can you imagine trying to move something like that? Right, I have a hard time lifting a rock this big, let alone a rock that big. Massive volume. And it says it was cut to absolute precision so that this temple that took 46 years to build, everything was built off of that cornerstone with such precision it was so exactly cut that everything was in line when they built the whole temple. So when it says Jesus is the cornerstone, it's talking about he's the absolute anchor and focal point of the entire temple that's being built. Only this time, 
Peter's talking about not a temple that's built like the one Solomon built or like the one Herod built, but this time God's building something new. It's a different temple. It's a temple of, of living stones. In other words, it's the people that God is collecting who are drawn to the rock, the Lord Jesus, and they become living stones that are now being built into this new temple. The old temple was centralized. The old temple was in Jerusalem. And everybody from all around the world had to come to that temple. The new temple is scattered all over the earth. It's being built all over the planet. Now God dwells in all believers everywhere. And all who are and will be drawn to Him become part of that new temple. If you wonder why God wants you to be saved, if you wonder why He wants you to step into salvation, if you want wonder why He wants you to surrender and do it His way, because He wants us all to be part of that new temple. And it's beyond our imagination what that looks like. If you read in Revelation, John fails with words trying to describe these things he's seeing. And he says, it's like this and it's like that. And it's like, well, kind of, sort of like, right? It's like, I can't really describe it to you, but, whoa, it's blowing my mind, right? It's that kind of stuff. And it's just beyond him because human words cannot capture what this new structure is that God's building because he's not building it with rocks. He's building it with people. This wouldn't have been lost on Peter either. He knew himself what it was like to become a living stone. And you say, well, how do I know that? Here's how I know that. Remember a little discussion Peter was having with Jesus. And Jesus said, hey, who do people say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you're not that quick. You're not that intuitive. You're not that smart. Somebody else revealed that to you for you to say it that clear. It was my Father in heaven. But you got it right. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, one interpretation held by right some brothers and sisters who are of a different flavor uh, would say that Peter's the rock and that God's going to build the church on Peter. But I want to suggest to you the rock that he's building on is the confession that Christ Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of the Christ, the Son of the living God. How do I know that? Why would I say that? Well, we, we sing a lot of songs about how solid and faithful we are, right? And we sing a lot of songs about I won't be shaken. And I always laugh when we sing those songs because half of us are rattled before we ever get out the doors on the way home, right? If you go to Colorado, they have a fabulous, it's, they're called quaking aspens. Uh, if you, how many of you have ever seen quaking aspens? You know what I'm talking about? And they're uh, a lot of times in a grove of trees. And the interesting thing about quaking aspens, all it takes is a whiff of a breeze, just a slight puff of wind, and the whole grove starts to shimmer, okay? It looks like tinsel at Christmas, just shimmers. And... Uh, and it doesn't take much wind to do that. If it's a strong wind, the whole thing's just blowing and shaking all over. And we are so much like that, isn't it? The slightest wind of adversity, the slightest wind of difficulty, the slightest wind of persecution or doubt, and we start shaking all over the place. That's what we tend to do as humans. Peter was the same way. Peter shook. What happened? He was at the trial. A little girl said, hey, you're one of his disciples. Three times he denied it. Peter shook. And what happened to Peter? He fell apart. Was Peter a rock at that point? No, he actually denied the Lord, right? Walked away from him, 
grieved. Then later Jesus comes back and he reinstitutes Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yeah, Lord, you know I love Peter. Do you love me? Right? And each time Jesus says, feed my sheep. And Jesus was reinstituting Peter into his ministry of which he is now writing this book. So who do you think Peter thought the rock was? Do you think Peter thought he was the rock? Or do you think Peter thought Jesus was the rock? I want to suggest to you, I think Peter knew that Jesus was the rock. So now with all of that in mind, with all of that history and all of those analogies and all those pictures, let's reread that, those two verses again. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Or let me read it this way. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter takes a second step and says, not only are you living stones, but now you're a holy priesthood. You're able to do what the first priesthood wasn't able to do. Peter's pointing out the incredibly high and exalted status of those who become living stones. And Peter adds this other dimension of the spiritual priesthood. And from this idea comes one of the great themes uh, of the Reformation. You know, Martin Luther and all that that came out of there. And that was the priesthood of every believer. The idea that there isn't an intermediary needed anymore. You can go directly to God. It's called the priesthood of every believer. And Peter's using this idea of you become a spiritual priesthood now. You have direct access to the rock because you're a living stone. And you can go to him and you can engage with him and you can offer sacrifices that are acceptable. If you think about it, in Israel, there was no higher privilege than to serve in the temple. It was the greatest thing you could aspire to. We're not talking about being around the temple or by the temple or being able to see the temple. We're talking about the ability to serve in the temple. Matter of fact, the Levitical, uh, the Levites, one tribe, wasn't given any inheritance in Israel when they settled the land. And they, uh, they had one job and one God was their possession. Right? And their job was to serve in the temple because they were priests unto God. That's this illustration of where we get the picture of the holy priesthood and the living stones. We are set apart to serve the living God. Now Peter's pointing this out. Now up at this point you're going, okay, nice illustrations and uh, you know, good head stuff, but no shoe leather. So I'm, it's daylight savings time and I didn't save. So I'm sleeping, all right? So where are you going with this? Can, can we get to this? Lunch is happening. Let's, what's the point? Okay, here's two points off of this. First of all, Peter's trying to point out the incredible reality of this before he moves on. Why? Because th- this group of people, who were they? Remember in chapter 1, he calls them the blank exiles? He doesn't call them blank exiles. He calls them what? Exalted exiles? They were the exalted exiles. All right, and we talked about, do you feel exalted when you're in exile? When your home's been ripped from you, when your possessions have been ripped from you, when you've been cast out, when you're fleeing for your life and you're hoping to find a place to land, do you necessarily feel exalted? No. And Peter's trying to get them to see that although they didn't look like winners, 
They didn't feel like winners because really there was there's no observable signs other than the Holy Spirit working through them. And the fact that they had come to know Jesus, they had met him, so they knew he was alive. It wasn't just Peter or Paul telling them anymore. And the fact that they had a love for each other, they had that. But outside of that, they really didn't have much that said, this is really true that God really is our rock. Likewise, we have the incredible privilege, like them, of serving in the temple. We are now the priesthood. We are the new to- we are the living stones. They were the living stones. We also are living stones in a temple that God's been building now for over 2,000 years. Here's where Israel got, got it wrong. They turned that from a get-to to a have-to. We have to worship God. We have to do the sacrifices. We have to offer the stuff. And it became burdensome to them. And they said, how am I getting ahead? Everything was measured by how am I getting ahead versus what am I offering to God. And Peter wants to make sure we don't make the same mistake that our serving God is a get-to, not a have-to. It's I want to. It's I've been entered into, and there's something going on here that I've never been able to do before. Right? Why is that important? Part of what they were struggling with is it didn't look like they were winning. We're not the only competitive generation on the planet right, that's ever existed. They wanted to win too, and they're like, how are we winning? We are getting killed. We are getting wiped out. We're getting ostracized. We're getting, uh, you know, we're, we're refugees and exiles. This doesn't feel like winning. And just like them, Peter's pointing him saying, hey, look to the rock who's higher than you. Remember your parental rock. Remember where you're cut from. Remember where it's saying, and we'll talk more about this next week. But he's basically saying, suffering's part of the deal. So just deal with it. But keep your eyes on the rock. Like guys, we get the tremendous privilege to look to the rock that is higher than us, the Lord Jesus, and let him, let him be our rock. So let's take that one step further this morning. So this morning, as we come in, all of us have uh, different life circumstances. Do you feel like you're losing this morning? Does it feel to you like you're not winning? That somehow you must have missed something because you're having a really tough time. It seems like everybody else around you is doing well. Do you feel like your life is being wasted? That it doesn't matter or it doesn't count? That uh, nobody is noticing? Are you feeling oppressed this morning? Uh, You've got enemies and you don't even know how or why you've picked them up. But at work or in the neighborhood or whatever, uh, they're there. And you're like, wow, this is not the way I thought things would go. Instead of a rock, you feel like life has turned you into gravel? Right? Just, right? And you're just uh, kind of graveling along there. The encouragement, what Peter's saying, is to set our heart. And that's called fortitude. This ability to set our hearts, set our hearts on the rock who will demolish all earthly government, kingdoms, and reigns. Again, King David hid in the rocks or the fortresses of the Judean desert. Peter is encouraging believers to do the same, to hide in the rock and thus be saved. Keep our eyes on the rock, the one who cannot be moved. And not just saved, but become living living stones, part of God's new work, this new temple that will last forever. 
And so there's an invitation there. Who wants to join my work in building the new temple? Who wants to be part of that temple? Who wants to be a living stone? Who wants to uh, be drawn and held by the rock? Protected by the rock. That invitation has been out for as long as there's been this entity called the church. That we are to come to the rock that is higher than I. So maybe this week we got our eyes off of that. Maybe this week uh, we've been losing hope. Maybe this week uh, life's just a gray puddle and we can't see up, down, black, white, nothing. And we need to come to the rock. We need to hide ourselves in the rock. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we come this morning, when we've talked about this idea, you are solid, we are not. You're the rock, we shake in the wind. Lord, and as as we come this morning, we recognize it's really easy to get our eyes off you. And Peter was pointing his group, and therefore pointing us, to being locked back in that we it's what you're doing is magnificent, what you're doing is eternal. Lord, like we sang this morning, when we've been there for 10,000 years, we've only just begun. It just keeps going. And through many dangers, trials and storms, you've already taken us. Therefore, the insinuation is you can complete and finish the journey. You haven't brought us this far to kill us. Lord, we really kind of puff and uh, get short of wind halfway through or three-quarters through a journey. Would you help us to have fortitude to stay with you and locked in for the whole journey. And we ask this in your name. Amen.